So after going through um, this lesson, I don't know about y'all, but it was kind of nice after lamenting the last lesson to spend some time in hope. And so I told some um, friends of mine, I said, after going through this lesson, I felt like we just needed to have a pep rally for Jesus. Because after reading all about what um, God did for David and about just how he loved him and took care of him, and, and then I began to reflect on what God had done for me, I was just completely overwhelmed with God's goodness. But then I have to tell you, um, after spending some more time in Psalm 18, I began to get a little disenchanted with the passage. Because as I began to dig in and start studying this and, and do the lesson, I kept seeing hope spring up over and over. I kept seeing things about hope. It was in every commentary I looked at. It was in every, it was in the lesson that we studied. It was hope over and over. And so when I knew that I was going to have to teach about hope, I got a little concerned because hope is not a word that I use on the regular. And that's probably because for most of my life, people, anytime I was going through a struggle or a difficult time, people would say, have hope, as if to somehow wish away the difficult situation or the pain that I was experiencing. And so I didn't want to hear have hope anymore. And so um, every time they said that, every time they tried to wish away the pain, surprise, it never went away. And you see, I didn't um, want to have um, just something outside of just this situation. I didn't think that wishing away things would be. And so anytime somebody said, have hope, I began to just cringe. And, and so it wasn't really a word that I leaned into. And so for me, there was, um, well, let me tell you why, because you're probably thinking, oh, look, she's one of our teachers and she hates hope. So great, um, but let me tell you why I had these feelings. So there was a time in my life perhaps when I was maybe less approachable, we might say, because I had gone through a painful divorce when I was 23. Maybe I was a little bitter about the divorce, I don't know, but um, I just um, really um, didn't have any interest in, in love because I had loved and lost and I didn't wanna have hope in, in that ever again. And so I was just, maybe just a little edge, a little chip on my shoulder, I don't really know. And so I remember sitting in class one day at Dallas Seminary, and it was a day like today, a day near Valentine's, and I was wearing a cardigan that had pink polka dots. And I know what you're thinking, y'all are thinking, of course you were, because I know what y'all say about me. So I was wearing this cardigan, and on the day of the cardigan, I was in class, and um, there was a gentleman who sat next to me who was always kind of testing the waters for approachability, maybe. And he leaned over and he said, hey, I like your cardigan. Are you wearing that for Valentine's? And I was like, no, no, no. And I could tell by his response, he needed me to elaborate. And now this is just a couple years after this divorce. And, and I looked at him and I was like... Valentine's breeds expectation, and expectation is the death of hope. And I have interest in neither expectation or hope, much less a holiday that celebrates either one of those. Thank you. I feel like I just heard a few amens in the room. And I knew at that moment he completely regretted ever offering me a compliment, but I did not regret the words that I said to him. Because you see... I had loved and lost and I didn't want to love again. I didn't want to have hope in something happening and in me being disappointed 
again. And so I became a realist who dealt with real situations and not what could possibly happen. Because I had had hope before. I had the world at my feet and the world pulled the rug out from under me. And so for me, I thought that having hope was weakness. I thought that having hope meant I wasn't satisfied with the now, and then I needed something besides my current circumstances to make me happy. And I was raised as a good Christian girl, and no good Christian girl was raised to feel discontent with what God had given her. And so when I said that expectation was the death of hope, I was picturing Snow White, You know, Snow White sitting in front of all her little friends, all her little birds and bunnies, and Snow White singing, someday my prince will come. And I'm not that girl. (laughs) And so hope was just too much for me. It It felt vulnerable, it felt weak, and it felt like it was just something for those who weren't satisfied with what God had given them. And if I was going to be strong in my faith, I just had to stick it out and take what God had dealt to me. Have you ever felt that way? When just having hope was just too much to bear? Now, I said these words as a Christian who was enrolled in a seminary learning about good theology. And so on one hand, I knew that I could trust in God's promises. I never questioned that. But on the other hand, God never promised a husband or children or a long-term love relationship. And so I was not about to hope in something that he had not promised. You know, what he promised us is what Sissy told us about, the blessed life. But the blessed life is the presence of God. It is not in getting the things that I think I deserve. And I was content with just loving God and accepting whatever came my way And so I sat open-handed, but I dare not hold on to anything too much. It hurt too much to have hope. Because my experiences told me that nothing is guaranteed, not even tomorrow. I have sat in the last year with too many people who suffered grief and loss that was unimaginable. And in this broken world that we live in, I'll tell you, it's real hard for me to stand up here and tell you to have hope. (laughs) The kind of hope I thought we were supposed to have. It feels like I'm just telling you to picture now Pinocchio and Jiminy Cricket when he's standing out on the ledge of the window and he's wishing upon a star. Because what's that going to get us? And I'll tell you, while it worked for Jiminy Cricket and it worked for Snow White, while I wish it was, this isn't Disney. And that's probably good because in Disney, all the kids have lost one parent or another. It's just the craziest thing. So, you know, I'm wrestling with this idea, this idea of hope that David expresses over and over, not just in this psalm, but throughout the psalms. And so when I felt that hindrance of teaching on hope, I had to stop and think, is what I believe about hope the same as David's hope? Now, spoiler, it's not. 
But it's important to, to discuss because we are hopelessly hope-filled creatures. God made us to have hope. We have desires and we have expectations for those desires. I want to look at our definition of hope. Our definition of hope that we often hear is to cherish or to desire with anticipation, to want something to happen or to be true, to wish for something. But biblical hope is certainty in God's promises. Tim Keller defines biblical hope as life-shaping certainty of something that hasn't happened but you know will. But for, so on one hand we have wishful hope, our kind of hope, and on the other hand we have certain hope, and that's God hope. So for David who found himself in this cave hiding from Saul, he had plenty of reasons not to have hope. This is where David had made his home. He had left the kingdom of Saul and had made his home in a cave. He ran from Saul for seven years. He had to leave his wife, and he had to leave his best friend, and he had to live in isolation and on the run. Yet he writes this beautiful psalm about gratitude and hope in his God. And just like David, we need hope to live. David needed hope to help him get through the days in the cave, and we need that certain hope to help us get through our days that feel like the cave. Because God created us as hope-based creatures. But let me explain. That almost seems like this idea. <laughs> but what it means for us as hope-based creatures, I want you to picture two women who were given the same job. It's just a factory job. They're working and doing this menial thing over and over. It's the same thing all the time. They're in the same circumstances, the same working environment, the difference is one of the women, at the end of the year, she will be paid $15,000. And the other woman, at the end of the year, she will be paid $15 million. And so here's these two women working in these completely identical circumstances, and they go to lunch one day, and the woman making that's going to make $15,000, she's like, oh, this is so awful. I'm miserable. I hate this job. I hate what we're doing. I can't stand getting through the days. Nine hours is so lengthy. And here's the woman who's making $15 million and she's like, really? Hmm. Yeah, no, it's not that bad. I don't mind it. I really enjoy it. You know, because she's getting paid $15 millions at the end of the year. So they have completely identical circumstances, but they are responding completely differently. Why? Because their futures look very different. And they have a different type of hope in their futures. You see, hope in our future changes everything about the way that we live today. You see, our actions today and our response to our circumstances clearly depict what we believe about tomorrow. Do y'all hear that? Our actions and our responses today clearly depict what we believe about tomorrow. So think about this, what um, today maybe you came in and you weren't just, you were a little disgruntled with the snacks that you got this morning at your tables. <laughs> but you can have hope because you know food for thought is coming. You know there is a taco buffet with your name on it. 
And so you can, you can put up with the snacks. You can, you can have a great, joyous attitude because of you know what your future looks like. And if any of you have a taco bar, I need to know, okay? You see, I want you to picture David who was running from Saul. I want to um, look at this. We know that in Psalm 18 and in 2 Samuel 22, he wrote a prayer of thanksgiving for how the Lord had rescued him. So let's read Psalm 18, 1 through 6. He said, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am safe from my enemies. The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol, Sheol is hell or similar to death. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me in my distress. I called upon the Lord to my God. I cried for help from his temple. He heard my voice and my cry to him reached his ears. He heard his voice. You see, God heard him crying out. You know, I don't know the specific details of this battle that just ensued. But just to recap what we do know about David, David ran from Saul for seven years. David was married to Saul's daughter, Michael. But in order to preserve David's life, Michael had to help him out the back window of the castle. And I can just picture him shimmying down the side of the castle as he's running for his life. And in Saul's kingdom is also David's very best friend, Jonathan. And he has to leave his best friend. He has to leave everything he's known. Even though David has done so many works for Saul, he, he killed Goliath. He played the harp beautifully and made Saul delighted with his music. He killed all the bad guys that Saul asked him to. Yet Saul continued to be envious of him. And because of that envy, David had to run for his life. David had no home at this time, and he found himself in a cave situation. Have you ever found yourself in a cave situation? Maybe not actual homelessness, but possibly, but maybe just in a place removed from the things or the people that you loved the most, where you have done all you can, but everywhere you looked, all you saw was loneliness or isolation or abandonment or betrayal. You know, where certain situations took away the life you loved or the ones you loved. Or if you weren't given the life that you expected. You see, we all have desires. We have expectations for those desires. And that's hope. Unfortunately for some of us, some of those deepest desires won't be met. I have a whole list. And so we lament and we cry out to God. And that's the world that we live in now. So how can David, in isolation, away from everything that he loves, how can David have such a certain and vibrant hope? 
I want you to know that there's good news coming. No more about lament. And so I'll go so far as to call David's hope, we're going to call it Watchtower Hope. So if you've ever, um, hopefully you've seen a watchtower or you know what I'm talking about, but um, maybe you've seen a battle at a, um, at a fort or, or something like that, but um, I want you to picture this watchtower. This is a watchtower actually in Ireland. And so the thing about a watchtower is you can see in all directions. You can see completely what's coming. And from the watchtower... You can climb up into the top and you can see without a doubt what's ahead. And so I'm going to ask you to close your eyes. I want you to picture this, okay? Imagine that you're at your fort, your castle, whatever you want to picture. It's your story. Um, Imagine fighting in a battle against your enemies within and around the walls of the fort. And from where you are, it doesn't seem like the battle's going all that well. You look around and you see casualties and you see disaster. And no matter how long you stand and wield your shield and your sword, the enemy keeps closing in on you. And it doesn't look good. You're wishing at this point that you could hear from from the other battalion, from your relief. You're wondering how long you can hold on. But then... You see the watchtower and you begin to climb all those stairs. You start running to the top of the watchtower and down below, you can see that the battle is still going. As a matter of fact, nothing has changed. It still doesn't look good for you and your army against your enemies. But just as you think you're starting to succumb to the enemy, you look up, you raise your eyes and you look beyond the fort Because from the watchtower, you get a 360-degree view of the world. And you look just beyond that hill. And do you see? Do you see him coming just past the hill? There's that battalion. There's that reinforcement battalion. They are coming. The restoration of your kingdom is coming. And you can see that without a doubt. Your future has been secured. You see, inside the fort, down in the cave situation, it looked like you were done for. But from the watchtower, you can see definitively the restoration of what's coming. Now, friends, open your eyes and look at me. That is Christian hope. Christian hope doesn't wish upon a star. Christian hope sees that the war has been won. Christian hope is a watchtower view when you have cave circumstances. You see, my definition of hope was wrong when I felt the need to put up my guard and not have hope because it was too much. It was because of the things that that I was hoping in, things that weren't guaranteed. You see, our English definition of hope is severely lacking. We um, don't have all the words we need to to correctly define hope. And that was the problem with my definition. My definition was one that just stayed in the cave and wished that rescue would come. But biblical hope, biblical hope gets up in the watchtower. You don't wish for what's coming. You can see what's coming. 
And that is the victory. You know, we can call it life-shaping certainty. That was Tim Keller's definition of hope. Life-shaping certainty. Because God is trustworthy of what he says and he will do what he says. God cannot leave his character because his character is good and trustworthy and true. And so let's go back and check on David. We've already read through this passage, but I want to I wanna check on David on his rescue and read this again. So look at um, verses 13 through 19. It said, the Lord also thundered in the heavens and the most high uttered his voice. Hailstones and coals of fire. And he sent out his arrows and he scattered them. He flashed forth lightnings and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen. Do you see David's in the watchtower now? He can see the channels of the sea. And the foundations of the world were laid bare at your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. He sent from on high, he took me, he drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place, a broad place of safety, because he, de- he rescued me, Because why? He delighted in me. He delights in you. You know, that's the kind of hope I want to have. When I can look out and I can see that the Lord has made a pathway. That he has laid the ground bare. You you picture a pasture. One of safety. And I want the kind of hope that knows that God will conquer my enemies with the breath of his nostrils. Did you know that is the God that we have hope in? Our certain hope. Are you up in the watchtower? Can you see what's coming? You see, David knew in confidence that the Lord delighted in him and he rejoiced in hope that the Lord loved him and that the Lord was near. And for us, we are so fortunate because David had the scriptures to know about God, but we have Jesus's words. And we know that Jesus delights in us. We know our exact future. And so I wanna turn over and I wanna look at John 14 and see what Jesus is saying to us. This is um, the night before Jesus was crucified. This passage, um, I think 12, 13 through 17, this is where Jesus is sitting with the disciples the night before he's crucified. And Jesus is talking to the disciples, giving them kind of his, his last words, his last advice. And in chapter 14, verses 1 through 3, um, he encourages them. In 15, he talks about the true vine, which you've um, perhaps read before. In 16, he says, um, take heart, for in this world you will have trouble, but I have overcome the world. And then in 17, he prays this long and beautiful prayer for them. But right here in 14, he stops and he says this. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself 
that where I am, you may also be, and you know where I am going. You see, Jesus is going to prepare a place for us. And this is in heaven. You know, it isn't prepare. He's not going to just prepare something. It's not like he's changing the sheets and getting milk and cookies for us. Jesus is securing our spot in heaven with his death. When he communicated this to the disciples, he knew what was coming was death. And that's how he could secure the place for them. Christian hope, it's not leaving the light of this world and heading into the unknown darkness. You see, Jesus has prepared a place for us. And so we can leave the darkness and the brokenness and go to a place of permanent light. And this is what hope does for us. Um, Imagine, (laughs) I want to tell you a story for you to picture. So I have a six-year-old daughter, Kate, and we play a lot because she likes that and she's an only child and so here I am. So sometimes when we play, we are our... um, our shadows fight each other. (laughs) And so we will see our shadows out here. And so we'll be kicking each other's shadows and punching and all of that. And maybe, maybe not one time I accidentally kicked her instead of her shadow. And um, she got real upset and we got lots of band-aids and everything was fine. But (laughs) when Kate and I are playing, do you think she would rather be hit by me or by my shadow? She would rather be hit by my shadow See, that's hope. When we encounter the cave situations here on earth, the separation from death, when we see evil trying to take over good, we are just getting hit by the shadow. You see, we know that Jesus took the actual hit and he does not need princess band-aids. He took the actual hit because when we sin, there has to be payment, right? In Romans, it says that the payment for sin is death. It is separation. It is loneliness. It is suffering. It is being removed from the things that you love the most. But Jesus took the hit by going to secure that place for us. He secured our place in heaven with his death, with his payment for our sins. And what we know about heaven is that it's not like earth. There are no cave situations. In heaven, our love will be restored. Death will be no more. Good will overcome evil. And when we stand at the top of the watchtower and look out, we see the Lord's promise that he has secured a place for us because he will return. Jesus took the real hit so that we can take the shadow. And please hear me when I say I am not trying to minimize the pain and the difficulty of suffering. I'm not trying to reduce it to a shadow because we know that it can feel like we've been hit by a truck. But know this, the life-changing dynamic of Christianity is that we experience the presence of the future right now. That simply means that we are shaped today what we believe about the future. We can respond today by what we know is coming. We need that certain hope. 
I have one last story for you. Um, Viktor Frankl is a, um, he's an Austrian a neurologist and psychiatrist, and he was in the concentration camps um, during the war, and he wrote this book, Man's Search for Meaning. And what this book is about, as a neurologist and psychiatrist, he was in the camps, but he couldn't stop being himself. He was a psychiatrist, and so he watched all of the people's behavior, and he observed how they responded. And he observed, um, really, how they responded to suffering. And he said that Really, his study wasn't about how many people died, but the fact that some people actually survived the camp, and he couldn't believe it. And so he, he began to study how they were responding in their suffering. And he said there were four different ways that people responded. The first way was that they just got brutal, that they just got mean and angry, and it, whatever it took to survive, they would trample on whoever they needed. Even if they were the nicest people when they came in, suffering turned them brutal. So the second group of people who dealt with the suffering, they just, um, this was a group that just gave up hope. They just woke up one morning and they were done, and so they just laid in their beds. They didn't go out to the rounds. They didn't eat their food, nothing. They just laid in their bed because they had no hope. Um, an example he told about this was one man who had a dream that the war was going to end on March 30th. And he thought it was a prophetic dream. And so he began to believe and live for March 30th to come. And so around the end of March, when they continued to get news stories and hear all about this, um, it became really clear that the war was not going to end on March 30th. And on March 29th, he developed a fever. On March 30th, he came, com became completely incapacitated, and on March 31st, he died. And they believed that a perfectly healthy man from three days before, that his lack of hope exposed him to illness, and he died of typhus. He gave up hope. So the third group of people, a lot of them held on by saying, if I can just survive, I will get everything back. <laughs> if I can just survive, then I will get um, my wealth and my health. I will get my um, status in society, my position at work. I will get all of that back if I can just hold on in the camp. But the problem was as soon as they got out of the camp and realized their expectations were not what they thought, it became fatal for them and they would become depressed and then they would give up and they would die. But then there was the fourth group. Only a few of the prisoners, he said, he, he says that they kept their full inner liberty. He describes it as inner liberty. He said they had an inner strength that raised them above their outer strength. They would stay kind and buoyant, not happy because they're in a concentration camp, but buoyant and, and kind and so he wondered why, and he studied them. And he found out that they would look to someone in heaven, to a loved one or God, and say, they're up there watching us, we have to make them proud. Now that's not our hope, right? We don't, that's not what we believe, that we have to make God proud of us. But it's still the same idea of hope, that we're looking to a future that's awaiting us, that's been secured for us. And Frankel said, he said this, that life in concentration camps tears open the soul and exposes its depths and foundations. I would say that works for suffering too. Suffering tears open the soul and exposes its depths and its foundations. 
And he said the only people who truly survived were the ones that had a hope and a meeting that even suffering and death cannot destroy. Friends, we have a hope that suffering and death cannot destroy. You can stand up at the top of the watchtower and you can see out knowing what is coming. You can see the promise of restoration, that death has been defeated, that injustice will be made right, that love will be restored and the loss will be made whole. And heaven, will, it will be heaven because God is with us. He's not out running errands and swinging by to check on us. He is with us. So what kind of hope do you have? You know, it's my joy to stand before you and say that the snow white hope I had for so long is not the hope that God has given me now. I see what he's done. And because my vision is to the future and what he's going to do, my response to suffering, my response to difficult situations, my response to the shadow can be completely different because it has torn open my soul and I see that the foundation of my soul is Jesus. Are you in the watchtower? Where are you? You know, we can't avoid suffering and unfortunately hope doesn't always take away our pain. But what hope does is it makes us aware that Jesus took the hit so that we could take the shadow. So friends, climb the steps. Have watchtower hope in our cave-filled world. Let me pray for us. Thank you, God, that you give us a certain future and that we can rest in that certain future. God, that we can respond today knowing the guarantee of what's coming, and that is your restoration and your love. Thank you, Lord. Be with us today. In the name of your son, we pray. Amen.